people in the back trying to, to sweat you out, <laughs> convert you to something. I just try to get an idea of what the audience is, so where I, I, I can um, lecture at, and then right behind you. Uh, I'm, I practice Rinzai Zen. I'm sorry? Rinzai Zen. Rinzai, okay. All right, and some of you said no. The two of you in the back. Oh, I know you. And in front of me, I've said, uh, I uh, said the law of Rinzai Zen. Yeah. Uh, It's okay. I, like I say, all I'm trying to do is get an idea of, of who's here, and, and so that way I'm, I'm not just like going A, B, C, D, F, G, you know, and and so um, I can, depending on where I'm at now, I, I can see I can go a little deeper than, than uh, or just the general public audience in the white Okay. asking people what um, what brought them here and what 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 their interests are. Yeah, so I'm just a little bit interested in meditation, so I'm trying to explore different branches of meditation, so okay. to know more about it. Alright, good, good. Yeah, you're also in the right spot, so that's good. So, um, and wait, and then you can go ahead. Yeah, we can wait two more minutes, maybe. People are still dripping in. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I, I got a kind of a general idea of who's here for that one. Okay, in the meantime, I, maybe I can already give an introduction quickly. So uh, this is a uh, um, uh, master Gilbert Gutierrez, and he, today he came from uh, Riverside, California. And we tried, we set up this event already two years ago, and then came COVID. So uh, it was just literally a week away. And uh, so Gilbert um, is an attorney by trade, so he's a lay uh, master. And uh, in the 80s, uh, in the college, he has been um, practicing uh, Chinese martial arts, and then which led to the Qigong, which he uh, practiced with various masters. And then uh, in the 90s, he uh, this developed into an interest uh, of Buddhism, and uh, in the 90s he met uh, Master Shen Yang, who founded the Dharma Drum uh, lineage of Chan Buddhism, uh, is based in Taiwan, and uh, so Master Shen Yang died in 2009. And uh, in 2002, uh, Gilbert became lay Dharma here of Master Shen Yang, and, uh, on, and since then, he has been uh, teaching uh, uh, mainly in the uh, United States, but also in Europe and Asia. And uh, now with the COVID, uh, he, he does a lot of online teachings too. And um, yeah, so uh, Gilbert's uh, style is pretty direct. So he, has a, he, he likes a lot of Lynchy and uh, also um, 
this is, uh, therefore I would like to invite you uh, to not be afraid of asking questions. Uh, that's why he came here to, uh, so he knows Kung Fu, just throw at him every questions you have uh, and see how he uh, deals with it. And uh, so to the organization, there will be 60 minutes lecture and then 30 minutes question and answer, then it will be around seven and then um, we should all be hungry for more and we go uh, to the commons room and for pizza. And there we can continue to uh, co our conversation. Thank you all. The way he lays it out, it's one is that uh, I don't come full so it's threatening, don't, don't worry. Not come uh, also, it's like kind of like uh, salvation hour mode, where you go to a place and, and you go to, to listen to it and you say, I, I didn't really come for the lecture, I came for the pizza. But, uh, but in any case, um, what I'm going to speak about today is the practice of Chan, um, C-H-A-N. Uh, Chan predated Zen, um, which you're probably more familiar with that term of Zen. Um, Zen um, was taken back over to Japan primarily by Dogen, but Ch uh, the Chan has been around for for a much longer period of time. The term Chan is actually a term um, from the Sanskrit word of Dhyana, which means to practice. And if we're going to talk about uh, Chan, and you can kind of in your mind talk about Zen because you're, you're familiar with that term, but just remember that, that the Chinese started it first. Uh, well, they started second after the, after the, uh, the Indians did from India. But the, it is something unique in particular of, of Chan itself that was, was extended beyond what the doctrines were that came from, from India. And I think that's kind of an important place for us to start because we need to know kind of, let's say, the pedigree of Chan. And sometimes we, when we want to see something um, let's say if we, we wanted to know where this came from, and I say this is an ancient Chinese boss, you would say, well, let me see the provenance of it to show exactly that it was, I don't even believe that the Chinese had plastic at that time, so that's kind of suspect. So when we look at things, we look at it and, and say, if you're going to look at Chan, what is the provenance of it? Um, and the provenance of Chan is, is that it comes from the Indian schools and it was a bit of an echo from what had been there before and what uh, the original uh, uh, teacher of Shakyamuni Buddha had uh, passed uh, on through uh, uh, several uh, centuries and when they started to write this down and uh, build a series of sutras and commentaries on the sutras uh, that began to trickle into China from various uh, ways, most from the Silk Road and coming into, into China. And it was kind of like an echo because this was something that was there already before. I, it was, I had a kind of a strange experience once when I went to, um, 
to China in the in the mid '80s, and when I was there, um, the uh, I was being driven by this young man and, and, and his girlfriend, and they wanted to impress me, so they put on some some uh, rock and roll. At that point, I think the Eagles were playing. They were probably the big band at that time. And they're playing rock and roll from the 1950s. And it was new to them, because the, the country was just barely opening up. But it was new, and they loved it. But it was already, and I had to kind of suppress a, a smile, because I, I loved the music, but it was like or they were a little bit behind. And that's the same thing as, as when this all of these sutras and writings from India came into China, they weren't contemporary to when they were written. They came later on. But the, that uniqueness was something that was important because what it did was it changed the way that Chan, or excuse me, the Buddhism was perceived. Rather than getting it as, okay, um, you're following one author and every year he puts out a book and then he puts out another one and another one, you get this all in, uh, some of it uh, at, at one time. And, uh, and then they began to look at that, and little by little there was more and more um, sutras and commentaries that were coming in from, from India. But what it did was it enabled the Chinese to, to assimilate it and bring it into their um, their uh, already constructed uh, systems of Confucianism and Taoism. And these systems were perfect vehicles to, to begin to relate to the, um, to the Buddhism that was coming in. And it was something, because in Confucianism there was an emphasis on, on trying to, to create the perfect person, and Taoism, the immortal person. And so when this comes in, and, it's, and it was a little bit different, um, it was their soteriological way of doing it was saying that everybody possessed the Buddha nature. And so, so that was the salvation that was there, that you already have this. You don't have to try to, to uh, build something from that. You uniquely possessed it. And this is something that's very important in the practice of Buddhism and as reflected in, uh, in Chinese Buddhism, and more importantly in Chan, was the idea of this Buddha nature. Um, this Buddha nature went through a, a quite a bit of progressions um, as, as it was coming through. And um, the first progression was the development of Mahayana. Um, and in the Mahayana meant this highest vehicle, which concerned um, a development of this unbridled or unconditioned compassion via wisdom. That was a big, big change from what had come on before and from the Theravadan vehicle where the goal was uh, in theirs is uh, a personal salvation reaching Nirvana. Whereas in the Mahayana, there was a change there where it said you all already possess this so in, in our practice, as I look at you, I see you all possess the Buddha mind. Understand, in our practice, there's not a Buddha. 
um, sitting on a throne somewhere determining everything that's going to happen. The Buddha is just this mind that's listening right now. If you really want to see the Buddha, look around you. Because everybody in this room is using the Buddha mind. We call it the Buddha, but it actually it's just mind. And then when we get rid of the idea of mind, it's just thusness, this thusness that this is the way things are. The term thusness was used by the Indians, uh, Tathagata, uh, to say thus come one, or Tathagata, thus gone one. But in, in terms of using it to say, it is this way. Because if you try to define the word thus, how would you define it? There's not really a way to define it. But that was their way of looking at this and, and say, you can tell me what the, defini the dictionary definition is. <laughs> it's okay. Because it's interesting because when you try to define it, you can't really define it. It just is. And, um, and it's kind of interesting because the Christians were, were later on coming up with this as well, and they always ended their, um, their prayers with what words? Amen. Amen, right? And amen means so be it. Be what? That's the way it is. So, so this idea of this thusness is very important because... Because it then um, directs us to our investigation of what mind is. Our, our investigation then is looking towards what is not in words, this, but, but where the source of the words come from. So this is very important. And we'll, we'll get back to that uh, in a moment. As um, the... As Buddhism came over, it, it came over with, um, in some parts, some Theravada, uh, Theravada notions that was, was called uh, the school of Abhidharma, and uh, also the uh, Madhyamaka school of the middle way, um, which the main proponent was Nagarjuna, and also Yogacara school, um, which uh, is the doctrine of, of mere consciousness. Um, in, in the Chinese, it was, uh, how do you say, Chen, Chen Lu, Chen, Chen Wei Chen Lu. Oh, Wei Chen Lu. Chen said In any case, uh, and this was important because that school, all of these schools came into Chan like a funnel. Each, even though these schools were discrete schools, and coming in from China, excuse me, from India, the Chinese took it like a funnel and funneled them all into, into Buddhism and they're reflected in the sutras that were coming out where, where you, for instance, one of the main sutras that came out, a sutra is something that is kind of, let's say, uh, equivalent to a part of the Bible, but the sutra came in one of the Lankavatara Sutra incorporated these different schools in, in its presentation of, of Buddhism. And the Chinese looked at it and said, that's good for me. We can accept all these, but instead of saying, 
I'm from the Madhyamika school, or I'm from the Yogacara school, or I'm from the Abhidharma school, you know, we don't want to hear any of that. They go, let's hear it all. Let's hear it all. If anything works, let's hear it. Let's accept it. And rather than distinguish and discriminate, they accepted this into the practice of this. And, and what they did was they added their unique twist to it, which was the investigation or contemplation of mind. Everything was there, all in the sutras, but what they did was they picked all this up, and then they, they, they were, began to look at things to say, what is mine? Now, when we, we talk about what is mine, we should not think about what is mine as your consciousness. Consciousness is, is, is different than mine. Consciousness is, uh, maybe keep the door open a little bit so people can't come in. Just kind of keep it a joke. Come on in. Um, do you have a notion of what you think mind is? Is it what you think with? Or something that there, that's different? To, to the Chan school, mind, uh, it's called ekayana. Uh, ekayana means um, just mind. Everything is just mind. So there was one um, master that was asked, you know, what, is, what is the substance of mind? And he said, mind is the substance of mind. What is the meaning of, of mind? Mind is the meaning. So it, what it did is it takes all of this, which we would say returns to the one, and it returns that one to its original source. Because no matter what we see here, it has to be created. I'll give you a, an example, okay? Just close your eyes for a moment. And this is, this is some exercise that nobody flunks, okay? Everybody can do this, so don't worry about it. You close your eyes and picture a red apple in your mind. Just picture it there. Just keep it there. A red apple. See it. You may even see a little leaf on a stem with it. A nice, glossy red apple. Now, while you're looking at the apple, I want you to change the image to an orange bright orange colored orange. You see the orange peel, it's different texture, different smell. And you can see the orange in your mind. Okay, you can open your eyes. You, you all passed the test. You're alive. And the thing is, is that when you did this, um, could you make the transition from an apple to an orange? Okay. Now, the question is not how you did that, but what was the apple and the orange projected on? 
What is that? It couldn't just appear in your head, right? So if you had an apple in your head, we'd have to take you to emergency. And even if it changed to an orange, that would be a problem. So where did those appear? Very interesting, right? They had to appear somewhere. They, they can't just appear. If I, I say right now, I'm going to manifest an apple right here. If you see the apple, you would be seeing it in, in mine. Not my mind, not your mind, in mine. And you saw the apple and the orange in mine. It was projected on something. If you take a slide projector and you project it with a slide of an apple, and you project, projected it up, up towards the sky on a clear night, what would you see? Huh? Nothing. Nothing. Why? It's nothing for the... There's no background. There's no background, right? You would see nothing. But yet, when you projected the apple, you could see it. That's something. That's something. It wasn't that you had... If you had a head that was empty completely, you would not be able to do that. But there's something that was projected on. And what created the image of the apple or the orange? And why didn't the apple interfere with the changeover of the orange? It wasn't like two slides were jammed together in a projector, the old projectors, and showing both. One gave way and the other one came on in the orange. And you say, oh, I changed my mind. <coughs> but that which it was projected on never changed. It was always there. That is not consciousness. That's mine. Whatever appears is mine. So we say in, in our practice, to know all of the Buddhas of the past, present, and future, we perceive that all phenomena is created by the mind. So in this way, we do not see things created by some divine force, or um, what some people will say, oh, that Buddhism still is monism, meaning that there is a supreme being. There is not. There is just simply the Buddha mind. This mind that you're listening to me now. This mind has never been born or created. It creates. But you cannot serve as a demonstration of mind because one, you move, and two, you were born, so you will die. So the body itself is not a proper vessel to be able to look at and say, ah, there goes God. And you say, oh, he's God. And you may say, he can't be God because I'm God. And, and I'll say, let's come back in 100 years and settle who's God. And if one of you 
comes in the room after a hundred years, the rest of you should run because it's a zombie apocalypse. Because they would be dead by nature. They, they have to follow the nature of this world. And this world, they cannot, they cannot um, exist beyond the, the lifespan of this body. But mind can. Mind's always been there. And so this is what the, um, uh, the Chan practitioners um, were looking at. Now, right around here is where I've kind of diverted this lecture into something a little deeper than I originally intended it to be. And we went beyond the ABCs. But I, what I wanted to do is a couple of things. One, I wanted you to feel a little bit uneasy about yourself or the idea of your existence of yourself. And I also wanted to develop a bit of curiosity on your part that would say, what if he's right? Hmm, how would that change things? How would it change things? If, if I saw you each as a Buddha, how would I change the world? It changes the world dramatically. If I saw you each as, as a Buddha, do you think I would create or uh, invent a gun? Why do we invent guns? It's insanity, right? Why do we invent bombs? Well, we have to project our self against their selves. Well, that's crazy. Why can't we just, you know, learn to, to live with each other and help each other? Well, because mine is mine and theirs is mine for the taking. And that's the history of the world. So we have to look at things as they are and, and say, wait a minute, to be a human being and try to protect this body, even though this body's on the probably the outside has a hundred year lifespan or shelf life doesn't make any sense because what am I protecting what am I doing and then the people that make a lot of money you would think people that have 40 billion dollars 40 billion dollars when would they say, you know what, I think I have enough money. I don't need to make more money. And, I mean, especially if you're building rockets for your self-amusement, no. It doesn't make sense. Think of what those $40 billion could do if spread around. Again, this doesn't make sense. John looks at things and what it does is, is that it sets the, aside the idea of the self and sees that the self is also a projection on the mind. Where the apple and the orange were projected upon, the self is also projected upon. It's we think because we've been using this idea of the self via self-love, egocentrism, um, self-conceit, that this 
is what runs the, the meat puppet, um, our body. But it doesn't have to be that way. What, what's running the, the, the body is also an illusion. It is not real. It's not truly mine. Because if it was real, if you go in to buy ice cream, and you go, uh, what kind of ice cream would you have? Chocolate. And then you say, no, I changed my mind. I want vanilla. And then the ice cream person says, uh-uh, that's not the rules up here. Once you make up your mind you want chocolate, you can never change it. And you go, wait. That's the only way you, yourself could be uh, implied to exist, is that if it never changed. But it's constantly changing. Sometimes you love somebody, sometimes you hate them, sometimes you love pizza or apples or this person, and then you finally get tired of that person. All of these things that come up like this, and when you see it, it's just something that is really kind of a, a, a amazing because we just really don't understand that. Because we're viewing things from the idea of the self. So what I'm trying to do today is to give you a different kind of way of looking at this, a, a different viewpoint. Not to proselytize and convert you. Don't worry, you know, I'm not gonna try to turn you into a Buddhist or a Chan practitioner or whatever. It's just another way of looking at things. And I've equally taught Christians and Muslims and Jews, uh, all sorts of different people uh, this, and it works, it doesn't matter what, what religion people are. Uh, eventually, they look at this as something useful because anybody who's talking about wisdom and compassion, we should pay attention to that in terms of, of how we see things and and try to to live our lives in that way of having, having a compassion or, or having wisdom. Imagine if you could do that. Now, who in, in this room, up to this point in your life, has not made a major mistake in your life? Raise your hand. We all have, right? We've all made mistakes. We make mistakes generally from the idea of whatever the self is telling us to do. And it's kind of like those old cartoons where you have a an angel on this side and the devil on the, the other side and the devil saying, say it, say it, he insulted you, say it, say it, say it, or whatever it is. And then the next moment, you know, you get into trouble and then that little devil says, wow, now you're in trouble and just kind of wipes their hands of it. It's that self that causes us the problems. Most of the time when we make mistakes, it's because we didn't understand what we we're doing, you know? So, how much is that diamond ring? 10,000, here's my card. See, see how far it will go, or whatever it is. We, we make these kinds of, of mistakes, and it might be the mistake of whose finger it is that you're gonna put that diamond ring on. And um, so, so, there's all sorts of things that happen. The wonderful part about Chan is, is that 
it provides you with this wisdom, irregardless of whatever religion you are, it provides you with a wisdom to live your life. And the way it does it is it brings you right to this present moment, right now, to be clear in this moment. Now, to be honest, how many of you, when you since you've been in this room, has your mind wandered to some, somewhere else for even a brief moment? Raise your hand. I'm doing a great job. <coughs> That's natural. It's natural because we can't, we can't keep our mind focused. But what if you could do that? What if you could keep your mind focused all the time in terms of what you're doing? That would be tremendous. It would really be something that you could use this mind um, and, and every moment you could um, you could choose the Buddha. Now, choosing the Buddha isn't like you're choosing the Buddha and the Buddha's going to go, thank you, thank you, no. And there's not a Buddha that's somewhere up, you know, in heaven, you know, wearing clothes from 2,500 years ago. No. I always say, you'd think if he's the Buddha, he would be able to afford, like, like fancier clothes now, you know. Um, but these are ideations of what we think the Buddha is. But when we look at it and we say the Buddha is just this mind. Just this mind, and we've peeled off these layers of habitual patterns. Most of the time when we act with people, and, and you can see it easily in your dreams, what do you dream about? What fears do you have, or aspirations, or strange dreams? They all come and they're manufactured in the mind from what you're mixing together like some kind of a weird cocktail before you go to sleep. What you've been dealing with the whole day, all of a sudden, here you go, here's your dream, boom, whatever it is, a mixture of fear, lust, desire, hatred, whatever, comes up precisely, it's appearing because you put it there. You don't know that. But you, this idea of the self, is, is mind. We don't understand that, but what's important to understand is that in this present moment, you have a choice. You have a choice to listen, or go shopping for a purse at the mall, or to study for this class, or wonder, you know, like, you know, I haven't studied for this exam or whatever, or I wonder what I got on that test, or I wonder if this person likes me or loves me or hates me or is going to leave me. All these things are coming through your mind all at one time. And, and you're so confused because they're just flooding you because you put them there. You let them stay there. You fed them all the emotions you have desires, vexations, you feed them every single day. There is a term in Chan, it's causes and conditions never fail. So if you want to meditate and you sit down and you want to quiet your mind, what do you think you would see when you meditate? Could you make your mind blank? 
What do you think? Could you just black out your mind? No. Why? Because you put in a whole bunch of stuff during the day that's going to percolate up just simply because you cross your legs and close your eyes isn't going to stop the flow of all these mental sensations, impressions, discriminations that are arising. It's not going to stop because they're naturally appearing. Sean doesn't tell you to, to do that. You know, if people have a conception, I come from California where, you know, and by LA we, we call it La La Land, you know. And, and so the idea in La La Land of meditating is you just sit like this under a tree or by your swimming pool and you just cross your legs and just blank your mind. Well, that's not meditation. That's not practice. To do that, they, the only way they could blank their mind like that is if they had too many pina coladas or whatever else they're drinking or some marijuana or something. And then they say, oh, I feel enlightened. Yeah, because you're high, you're floating around. That's not the practice. And so the thing is, is that when we see things in this way, it, it is the wrong way. When we meditate, guess what? The goal is not to stop the thoughts from coming. The goal is just simply letting the mind rest in the present moment. Those thoughts in accordance with causal conditions will eventually stop coming in. So if I went to a canyon and I yelled, like, Gilbert! I'd hear, Gilbert, 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 But if I said, Gilbert, 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 then I would hear multiple ones because it created this habit energy of repetition, but each one is a little bit less than the one before. So these things that are arising in mind, we see them as, as exactly as they are. There is uh, the, the final verse of the Diamond Sutra, the, the full name of it is the, 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 the diamond cutter that cuts through illusion, is it says that all that uh, we should think of this fleeting world is a drop of dew uh, on a leaf, uh, a morning star, a bubble in the stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, an illusion, a phantasm a dream. That's all this world is. We don't understand that. We don't understand that this life is very fleeting. And then you probably go, well, why am I going to practice? And so, if it doesn't mean anything, well, it does mean something, because you can use this life to change things. You can use this life to not annoy people, not anger people, not take from people, not lie to people, to create a positive environment around you. Yes? So uh, if we follow the metaphor and it's a dream, why would you care about not annoying people, not lying to people? Okay, I'll use this analogy with you. You have a partner that you live with? I have roommates. Roommates, okay. So you have a roommate. I didn't mean a partner in any kind of thing. I, was just, I didn't want to say boyfriend, girlfriend, or whatever. But you have a roommate. And suppose you saw your roommate, and he was tossing and turning. Oh, ah, 
having a bad dream, what would you do? I don't think I would interfere with that. You <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't? Probably not. It doesn't seem like my business. Aye, aye, aye. <laughs> Should I? I don't know. What would you do? How many would wake up, wake up the roommate? And we are we say, on the, are we on the same path? We're, we're in I mean, he, he's like come from the Marquis de Sade college school where he's looking at it and going like, oh, look at that. He's really thrashing around. He must, it must be like a big dragon chasing him. I know you would wake the person up. I know that. You're just being stubborn, but it's okay. You know, because he realizes he'd wake him up. But he also realized what my next question would be. Which is, why? Why would you wake him up if it's just a dream? It's just a dream. It's not going to hurt him. So, so, why would you wake a person up? This is what we do because we understand that this, this world is an illusion. But yet, what perceives to be what we call sentient beings, they suffer here. Even though this is an illusion, they're suffering. There's good times too, you know, for some of you, if you're so inclined, meat eaters, to eat Chicago pizza or, or a Chicago dog or whatever. Um, I don't know how your teams did this year, you know, so I can't say too much about that. But, you know, there's good things, and then there's a lot of bad things. You know, um, I was constantly reminded coming here that this is not the safest place in the world. So I, I don't know too much about that, but maybe you do. So the thing is, is it, it's some good and some bad. It's the perfect place to practice. But you want to wake people up. Even if you all of a sudden, in one day, woke up, and you, you just go, whoa, this world is an illusion. It really is an illusion. I can see through this world. I'm getting out of here. This is a bad dream. I'm gone. But that's not how we practice. We practice and go, it's like the parable of the burning building. And you, if the building is burning, would you go in to try to save people, or would you just watch them burn? Now, there's some circumstances, unfortunately, where that happened, where people saw that at the school massacre. It was atrocious. And it was atrocious because everybody was saying, why didn't you save those kids? Because of self. You know what one of the people said? One of the people, one of the security officers there said, if it was my child, I would have gone in to save him. Self. That's the self. When you're not, when you're living in the dream, all you think about is yourself. All you think about is the, the self of others. But when you're out of that dream and you see things as they really are, you have compassion. Because every person there is worth saving. Every single one. 
and you, you do your best. That's why even deep down, and the people are living in this dream, in this horrendous dream at that time, they still know right from wrong. Some of them look at it and say, how could you even possibly think that way or say that? Nevertheless, that's somebody's child that's in there. To me, you're, you're all children worth saving, worth waking up. Not the body. The body dies, but here's the thing. So, uh, are there any Christians in the room? Nobody? My God, what happened to the Christians? <laughs> Wasn't this a Christian school at one time? But in any case, if you're a Christian, you only get one shot at this. So this is Gilbert's uh, good reason to be a Buddhist, right? If, if you're a Christian, you either get it on the first chance or you go to hell for the rest of eternity or infinity, however that's long. Um, that doesn't sound really promising. So if you're, I tell Christians, more so than Buddhists, if you're a Christian, you only get one shot, so you better be darn good in this life to make sure you get in, because if not, now the Catholics did a, another thing, which is they kind of got a midway point of purgatory to give you a, a second chance. So you have a second chance that you might be able to get there. Buddhists, if you die, you, you, you come back. That's Gilbert's lifetime guarantee. If you don't get it in this lifetime, you're guaranteed another lifetime to come back and try again. But there's, you know, there's no guarantee as to what you'll be when you come back. You could be a heaven dweller, or a human, or an animal, a ghost, a hell dweller. You never know where you're going to be. Being a human gives us a good opportunity because we can experience bliss and sorrow. If you're in the heaven realm, why should you practice? It's like, like the students, you know, um, on the first week of school, I'll start practicing. I'll start reading the book next week or the week after that. You mean the test is tomorrow? No. Anyway, it, those were dreams I had well into my 50s where I would wake up and realize I hadn't bought the book for, this, for the class that I was supposed to be taking. I didn't even know where the, the classroom was. So all of that's illusions, right? They're all brought on by all of these emotions. When we see things, we see them very, very clearly. So this is, this is Chan, is we are in the present moment. So let's, let's do another little exercise. Just close your eyes for a moment. Keep your mind in the present moment. Don't let it stray. Just stay with my voice. Stay in this moment. Make it razor sharp. Don't cling to anything. Even voices outside the room, let it go. Relax. Relax your body. Thank you.
relax your eyes and your jaw, your shoulders, your arms, even your fingers, your chest, and your back. All tension going out in this moment, right now, to your pelvis and your legs. relax the mind. Don't bring up any thoughts. Let it stay in this moment. Sharp. Clear. You hear, listen to a lecture. to any sounds or mental impressions. surroundings without thinking, just as an extension of your own mind.
there's no discrimination. The mind is in harmony. No craving. No discriminations. It's just at rest. Stay in the present moment. You're going to be listening to me. I did not hypnotize you. If I did, I'd charge you money or make you quack like a duck or something. How do you feel? Calm, clear, peaceful, right? Do you know this is how you should feel all the time? You don't walk around like a zombie, but you engage people with this quiet mind. You make less mistakes. You are more likely to love that person than to hate them. You're less likely to say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing or think the wrong thing. We call that body, speech, and mind. We are, have this awareness there. We choose. We now, in our life, realize that we're in control of this lump of flesh. That we can control it, and it does what we want it to do. It doesn't, it's not subject to being hypnotized by habitual patterns of when, you, when people are um, uh, seeing things and they're colored by their impressions from before. That I like this, I don't like this. Um, it's um, something that we see very, very clearly. This, uh, Afternoon, I was talking to a group of people at lunch, and I said, I have compassion for everyone. I even give blessings to a certain, I won't name the person, but a recent ex-president. How can you bless him? Why not? Who else would need it more? 
see the world in this way. We don't make the world better by creating divisions, but by spreading love, spreading a compassion, this, this great unbridled compassion. It's not easy to, to forgive people, right? Anybody that you haven't forgiven, it's not easy sometimes. You hold grudges. Sometimes the people that are very scary, they'll say, I'm going to get even with you if it's the last thing I ever do. And then they come back in another lifetime to create a problem in this lifetime. We never see that. We call that karma. But we never see that. We don't understand that why things are the way they are. Sometimes the karma can be very amusing. Uh, sometimes it can be very dreadful in the way it happens and, and what happens when we look at it. But we, one thing is that when we practice well in the present moment, we are aware of what is appearing. And we understand that whatever is appearing didn't appear by happenstance. There was a, a very simple example of this that somebody told me earlier today, that they had done something um, that wasn't permitted, and they had this slip of paper, and on that slip of paper, there was something that they had done wrong. And when they went outside, as soon as they went outside, a bird pooped right on their hand. And that person then went, okay, I get it. No. The chances of that happening in that moment when that person was manifesting it, it was like nature telling them, don't do that. You're better than that. You know you're better than that. Don't do that. That's all that person needed to hear. Other times, you know, a squadron of eagles could poop on somebody and they'd never figure it out. They would just go and find themselves a gun. We don't want to do that. We want to be the best we can be. We want to create around us a very positive environment. I want you to think what is the environment that you have around you? What, what have you created as an environment? So if people, they come up and they, they walk up towards you and they get close to you, what will they feel from you? Don't you even take another step closer. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Or frown. What is it that we can't smile at people walking the other way on the sidewalk? It doesn't hurt. If you smile like you're in cheek, most of the time the people will smile. And then the one person will say, but what the hell is he smiling about? The other person. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because at least you're creating an environment that belongs to that person, but not to you. My dad, um, I grew up in a Mexican family, and there's a, what's called dicho sayings. But one of them that was very, very good was that he said, it's always better to have one donkey than two. And so if you have somebody that's hostile towards you, they're a donkey. 
But if you're hostile towards them, now you've got two donkeys. So we don't want to do that. We leave it alone. You, you, in the present moment, you determine what you're going to do with that situation. You understand, okay, let's put up, and we'll say, the self list of things to do when somebody calls you an idiot. You know, what are you going to do? One, say, no, you're the idiot. Now that's too obvious. Number two is spit on them, too, too aggressive. You know, number three, run away. No, they might be fearful of that. Number four, and whatever, you go through these all predicated on the self. But if you are there and, and you um, are using your, uh, your mind, the Buddha mind, what would be some of the alternatives that you could do? One of them would say, that's a rather hurtful thing to say. No, another one is just ignore it. Um, or, or try to diffuse it in some way, whatever, but what you're doing is from that list, not the ones in column A, which are the self, you take the ones from column B, which is, which is wisdom, and you choose whatever is the best one out of that group. Later on, there is no list that appears. Later on, the body will naturally, the body and mind will naturally harmonize with the situation. Of course, there's going to be times when no matter what you say or do, it's not going to change that person. You just leave it alone. You just move away from it. That's the best thing to do. Engaging with the person will only produce more anger or more confrontation. So you leave them all alone. How many of you have figured that out when you have somebody who's mad at you and you just leave them alone, right? It calms down after a while. But if you go, no, you're stupid, then you start going again, right? And then you just, all it is at that point is just a battle of trying to figure out some awful word to say to the other person to harm them. Two donkeys. What happens with that relationship? It's something not easy. And, and there's people who have a black belt in insulting others. You ever run into somebody like that? Oh, they can make you feel so small, so easy. No, that's just the way they are. They are. You leave them alone. No, you don't have to confront them. They're, they're foolish in what they do. You pity them. You transfer merit to them. You try to bless them. But you don't have to go up to them, you know, um, and and try to to change them, you know, um, and go up to them with a crucifix and say the power of Christ compels you, and try to take the devil out of them. It's not going to work. You do things in an easy way, and you little by little. It's not that you have to do it right away. You're patient. One of the, the virtues, or what they call paramitas, is patience. We don't understand this word, and, and I know where we're at. We, we don't understand this word, patience. But I was, as I was preparing uh, the lecture for today, that was one of the words I wanted to tell you about.
it's not easy. You should practice patience. And in the Paramitas, there's all sorts of noble practices in those, in those. But patience looks like it was just kind of thrown in there. But it's not. Because the patience is to be able to be in the present moment to be patient with people who, who you think are totally ignorant or are, are doing whatever they're doing. In due time, you choose how to respond to them, but you take your time. You're not going to change people right away. Sometimes it takes many, many years to change a person, but they will change. And, and sometimes many of my students, right away they get it, like in a snap of a finger, boom, they change immediately. And others, they're still five years, 10 years, they're getting it, they're changing, but at a very slow rate. Everybody's different. But to me, I don't say, I'm, I'm going to pay attention to the one that gets it right away. I put more attention to those who still don't get it to try to show them how to do this, how to, how to uh, endure, how to understand what's happening, how to accept the things that happen to us in life. We, we have difficulty in that. And so we, we don't understand that. And we choose to, to um, have uh, somebody else at fault to blame. If you ever blame anybody for something that you did, I know you did. <laughs> I know you did. I did too. That's called self. We don't need to do that, but we do it. Why do we do that? Because we don't want to look stupid. We don't want to look at fault. And, and, and it's, it's a horrible thing sometimes when we do that. And then, do you feel good about yourself after that? Oh, that was so good. I, you know, I, I knocked over the coffee pot at work and I blamed it on the guy next door. I put the, the coffee crumbs going to his room. <laughs> Whatever it is, we, we, we just don't understand because it's ignorance. Chan is the illumination of the mind. And in its practice, not just in meditation, but in what we call walking, talking, sleeping, eating, and Chan, working in Chan. This is the mind that's at rest. It's in the present moment. It's patient. It's clear. It's not bad. It's pretty, pretty darn good. Mark Twain, he said that we should, uh, we should start our life at 80 and work our way backwards. Can you imagine that? You, you, you've got a few years on you. What, what would you give to start at 80 and work your way backwards, right? You wouldn't make a lot of the mistakes that you did. Right? I mean, it's just that way. I mean, I don't have to point out to you because, I mean, I point out to myself when I'm, you know, I'll go back. 30 years. Don't do that. Or don't say that. You know? All right? Then the life changes. You know, don't go for this or don't do this. It's better. In that moment, we had the capacity to choose properly. We just didn't have the 
opportunity to know what causes our problems. The self. The self is illusory. It's a habit. It's a habit. And we have to understand that. And when we understand it, that habit goes away and what's left is mine. Wonderful, beautiful, illuminating mind that sees mind in everybody and every creature. Not bad. That's Chan. If you want to know more about it, you're welcome to. You can, you know, you can. Um, I have uh, weekly uh, lectures by Zoom, and you can go to that. Go to retreat. Go to the local Chan Center. Uh, you can ask Michael about that. Uh, Michael is a very good practitioner, um, and uh, and and you can begin to learn about this or pick up some books uh, to read about this. And, and you uh, you can't go wrong. No, it's not like you're all of a sudden you're going to be put in some room to be indoctrinated and have to give up all your monies or whatever or come out and go, what happened to your hair? I don't know, I went to the meeting. Look what happened to me. I had a full, you know, broke the hair and I became a, um, a practitioner and I lost all my hair. So we say that there's no hair, it's a sign of wisdom, right? <laughs> These two fellows even this one here. Although I think he's more artificial. <laughs> okay, anyway, um, what you're beginning to show is that I have a sense of humor. You know, sometimes people look in there, they, they get nervous because person's make, making jokes, but, but that's my style, is to make you feel more comfortable and, and uh, to, to have things. I know that I said a lot of stuff and I kind of jumped around a, a lot of different things. Actually, I never got off my first page. Um, I just got to proselytize, which was the second line, and everything else was, was just came out naturally, okay? But I, I hope that uh, whatever I said was food for thought for you, food for contemplation, and that you know, it will make your life better. You, know, you stay in the present moment. Don't harm each other, okay? That's very, very important. And then you, you know, you're halfway there. Okay, um, I thank you for listening, and we'll open it up for some questions. Yeah, so we have 20 minutes. Uh, the pizza is there, but let's... Um, Stay 20 more minutes here until 7, uh, and um, this is now the Q&A part, so, and then we can continue uh, over lunch. So, any questions, throw it at Gilbert. This is the way it always starts. Uh, him and then you next. Go ahead. Um, you mentioned talking a lot about, like, dealing with the problems you wish you had, or the mistakes you wish you hadn't made in life. Yes. Um, and I guess the question is, what, like, yes, in retrospect, you look back and you say, oh, I could have made a different mistake, or, oh, I could have said something different or acted a certain way, and you didn't have control of the self, but, like, especially when you make mistakes and they feel very present in your life, like, what are your strategies, and how do you view how you should think and act around those mistakes, especially when they feel so... Yeah, I, I thank you because your question is an excellent question. Um, and it goes to part of our practice, um, uh, and, and that's called shame and repentance. You know, so don't freak out. I'm not teaching you religion. I'm just teaching you how to look back 
And, and, and so when we look at something like that, I don't think there's anybody in this room that wouldn't look back and have shame on something they did. Maybe all it was was they kicked a, a puppy, you know, when they were three years old. I, I think I'd venture to say there's more than that that you feel sorry for. But what we do is we look at those things and we see them from the viewpoint of who was the recipient of that. So for instance, you took $10 out of your mother's wallet, okay? Um, or you, you did something somewhere that caused somebody ridicule. Whatever it is, you, you look at those things and you see them from the viewpoint of that person and you see why you did it from the ego. I would venture to say 100% is from the ego that you, that you harm those people and that you hurt them. So then what we do is we, we develop a shame for that kind of action and we, we make a determination, I'm not gonna do that again. I'm not gonna take money from people or ridicule them or harm them or whatever. And that's a very positive practice because it goes to the present moment. So in that present moment then, we're, a, we're better able to to act in the proper way. Uh, one master said to me, you can't put new wine in an old barrel. You have to clean the old barrel first. So this kind of a, of a retrospect and a self-introspection in terms of looking at something that we did helps us in the present moment. We don't have to go back because we can't unwind the thing. We have to pay it forward. And so we, we make that determination. We're not going to harm them. Sometimes if, if the actions were grievous, we may do good things now and transfer merit to those that we harm. And, and, and so um, it, it's part of the practice because it's all connected by mind. But, that, but thank you for, for saying that because that's an important part of doing this. It, it helps you. You're young, you know. If you learn this now, I guarantee you it's going to pay off when you get to my age because I'm glad I, I learned that. I, I could have made a lot more serious mistakes in my life in, uh, going forward and you didn't pay for you know, and now you're paying for it. You're back there. Yeah. sometimes comes easy to some people. They, they can have a compassion. 
so so incredible, you know. So I saw a person, and there was a, a driveway, a hundred foot driveway, after a rain. What is that person doing? What is it doing? And they had a little stick, and they were picking up every earthworm on that driveway and throwing them back in the grass. I'm going, that's compassion. I mean, my gosh, that's like, like really, really compassion because it, they're feeling something for a worm. And, and for other people, it's more acquired. To me, it was more something I had to learn. I, I wasn't, uh, had that coming out of the box. I had wisdom come out of the box, but I didn't have that kind of compassion. I had to use my wisdom to develop that kind of compassion. And the way I developed it, uh, I'm still a work in progress, but the way I developed it is by beginning to transfer merit to people that I perceive to be enemies, or people that had done me wrong, and people that I knew were bad people. You know, um, if you can, transfer merit to a politician, you're way ahead of the game. You know, I'm sure there's enough that people, I won't say one party or the other, but I think you get the idea. But I mean, the whole thing is trying to, to develop that kind of compassion takes practice. And, and so it's by the, the act of doing it. We cannot walk around and play like we're a saint. When, when we act in this way, it's so contrived, it smells. You smell, you know, because you're not really who you think you are or who you say you are. You don't have that kind of compassion. It's only by, by your actions that you do that. So you don't try to play compassion. You practice compassion, and it will come naturally to you. It will, cause and conditions never fail. So the more you're compassionate, the more you you, you give in, in many, many ways, you know, then uh, you do that. It is not like the, um, uh, I don't know, probably most of you don't know, the, the cartoon characters Chippendale. Mm -hmm. Chippendale, these two little chipmunks that are, that are always polite. And so they're so polite to a fault that they won't even go through the door because they go, no, after you, no, absolutely, after you, after you, after you. You know, it's not Chippendale compassion, you know, that we're doing. It, it, it's, and sometimes I talk about, like, uh, when a person sees um, a little baby dead raccoon, okay, and they go, oh, look at the little baby dead raccoon. Look, he has his little stripes and his tail and this way, and they're just arranging it. I'm going to put him in my garden, bury him, and put a, a cross or whatever and some flowers and make a thing and a couple of pebbles there. You know, but if you see a baby dead rat, what do you do? Oh, a rat. Let me get a shovel and throw it in the trash can. No. That's not unbridled compassion. So whatever we do, if we take a life of an insect, we have to be mindful that we just took a life of something. No. And, um, or, or um, a rat or whatever it is, you know, that you took a life of, you're mindful of it. No, sometimes you have to do things in order to make things safe around you, but you're mindful of what you've done. And so you're careful about, about those things. Is this really necessary? So I had moved into this house, and they, before they had a lot of field mice, I was up on a canyon, 
And so there were so many mice, and I go, I can't kill these mice. So I would put out glue traps, and then, and so they would stick to the glue traps, but then I'd have to put vegetable oil on them, slowly peel them off, put them in another bucket, and then release them into the wild. So I found a way to try to be compassionate about it, which was not easy to get, try to get a, a mouse or, or a rat off of a glue trap is a little tricky. But I, I felt the necessity to try that, you know. So sometimes, you know, you can do that. Other times it's different. It just depends. But you're mindful of your compassion. And the more compassionate you are in that way, the more you, uh, you will do the right thing. It'll become natural. So this is how you do it, it's by practice, okay? Did you have a question? Yeah, just I really enjoyed the lecture. I'll be coming to the piece this weekend, and these two questions got me thinking about the role that like, self-love plays, because, and I'm, we're talking about no self, so how can we have self-love when there's no self? Um, but I'm curious what you think about the role that compassion for, for lack of a better word, oneself place because at least in my experience I like dealt with a lot of shame for a long time about past mistakes and I didn't realize that that was manifesting more and more mistakes because I didn't love myself and it was through forgiving myself for past mistakes realizing that those mistakes had given me wisdom and brought me to where I am that I was able to sort of start to untangle that and maybe make better choices um, so I'm curious, yeah, both how you think about self-love and then also whether, you know, feeling shame for mistakes uh, as opposed to compassionate forgiveness and the, the wish to do better next time, how do you think about that? Yeah, it's, it's very interesting the way you pose the thing. And, and everything I'm going to say is not in the sense of ridiculing or pointing out anything. I, I, I'm, I'm going to try to give you a, a second viewpoint of that. Um, because I know you're earnestly trying to, to resolve these things. And it's kind of interesting because the viewpoint that you use is still trying to preserve the self and trying to say, you know, I'm really bad. You know, so you become a self-flagellate. You know, you start whipping yourself, you know, for what you did. And, and that's natural. It's natural and it's a... Um, a protection mechanism from the illusory self that wants to continue on and say, I promise, Scout's Honor, I'll do better. I know I was really bad and stuff, but I will do better, and just keep me around. You, you don't have to lose me. Just keep me around. Let's we'll see if it doesn't get better, and I'll, I'll try to behave, you know. And it is in this way in which we have this self-preservation kind of coming into play. If we look at it, tweak what you're doing just a little bit. You, the Buddha mind, is the salvation and the problem. Because you create the idea of the self. But you're ignorant about that. The self is not necessary to be there. When you understand um, my master used to say, to know the self is to get rid of the self. But first you have to know the self. So now in your process, 
you're halfway there. So you, you know the self, you know why these things happen because your self was, was wanted to lash out or whatever it's doing, okay? But at that point, when you uncover it, then you can get rid of it, okay? Um, it's as you, you're kind of wondering, you're going, all these bags of bread on the counter, they all have holes in them. What the heck is eating them? And then finally you move the refrigerator and you see this little mouse going by. And, and it, it's going, I'm just an innocent mouse, don't hurt me. Okay, I won't hurt you. But that's yourself with a self-pity coming up as a self-preservation mode. You don't have to step on it. You just have to illuminate it. And you illuminate the fact that that which is illuminating, that illusion is the true self. We call the self-nature of mind. So by doing this doesn't mean that you go home, you know, and you, um, you disappear. You, you simply recognize what is appearing in mind. So one master, he, he said, the crime is not um, that thoughts appear in mind. The crime is not realizing soon enough that they appear. Wisdom is the ability to see thoughts as they're arising in mind and recognizing their source. Ultimately, their source is mind, but if they're tied to some kind of a habitual pattern, if it recognizes that, you know, then it can, it can watch over that. So, so you, you know, you're less likely to do harm to you or to others. And this idea of, of putting others before yourself will clarify mine. You will not be thinking of the self anymore or trying to reform it. Too many people try to reform the illusory self, but that illusory self doesn't exist. So if we, we pull it back to its original source, then, it, then it's a better practice for you. So you won't fall into to these things. I, I, I saw that you were listening to this, and that's why I'm taking the time to do to say it to you so that it's not like, oh, you don't know self or whatever. No, you're right there. You just gotta, gotta turn the corner, and, and you'll be right there with it, okay? Any other questions? Just turn it back to you. Um, one of the things I'm interested in, and I think that many of us are interested in, is how to commit deeper to the practice. So we have a desire to have more energy to realize enlightenment and to uh, maybe bring up and be mindful more often in our lives of, of awareness and, and thoughts and sensations. So I wonder if you could talk about maybe ways that we could commit deeper. Does it always happen more time? Are there other Yeah, there was a story of a person that went to their master and said, Master, um, if I practice, how long do you think it'll be before I can get this, really get this right? And he said, 10 years. And he said, but Master, what if I really, really tried hard, like really, really hard, and, and put all my effort into it, how long would it take then? 20. <laughs> And, and the idea here, there's wisdom there, because uh, we, we have to have this patience. And so everybody's a little bit different, 
there's no set thing where you're going to go in like Navy SEAL school, you know, and in 30 days you become enlightened or you're dead, right? And it's not in, the, in that way. It's in the patience and understanding. And as you begin to do that, it works. Sometimes I tell people, if you're going to meditate, when you're starting, only meditate for five minutes. And they're going, what? I said, meditate for five minutes. Because if you meditate for for a half an hour, and you can only meditate five minutes before you start seeing movies and having all sorts of thoughts, then what you're practicing is the next time you're gonna sit, you're gonna meditate for five minutes and you're gonna have 25 minutes of watching movies. So that doesn't help you. So it's better to start with five minutes, and if you can hang on to that, then 10 minutes. You know, but we come from this, you know, um, instant uh, uh, ramen soup uh, culture, you know, we can throw something in the microwave and it becomes something sort of like ramen in, in like three minutes, you know. And, and so we, we want to go in that way, but the quality of it is not the same as if you had ramen noodles, you know, from the noodles, a real ramen noodle place. So, so we, we do everything in the middle way. We, we practice, but we're not in too much of a rush. Let it, let it come naturally. It will come to you, I guarantee you. If you do that, it will come to you. And but if you try to rush it, it will make it worse. But if you, if you do it naturally, you'll be surprised how fast it picks up. The most progress I made were, is when I stopped uh, measuring my progress. As soon as I stopped measuring my progress, boom, there it was. It was just waiting, what are you doing? I'm, mine's going, I'm waiting until Gilbert finally decides not to measure his progress. Oh look, he stopped, boom, there it was. It, it's just that way sometimes, you know? So. So practice, just, I would say just practice sincerely. If you're practicing sincerely, you can practice for an hour sincerely or five minutes sincerely. You practice for five minutes and then after that it, it all falls apart, then get off the cushion or, or stop practicing and just build on what you, you uh, had established with those perfect five minutes. You see what I'm saying? And do it that way. And everybody's different and you know, the more, you put in where, where you're sitting on the cushion, you're listening to lectures, you're reading um, uh, stuff, all that's money in the bank. The, the more you put in it, the more you're going to get, you know? And so, but it's not like, it is the time, it's a sincerity in, in what you're doing. And that, that will teach you, okay? All right, there was somebody had a question. Yes? Are you afraid that when you use this uh, cartoon two donkeys. Are you afraid that when you go into this big mind and all you do is you know, practice meta, are you afraid that's too passive sometimes? What, what, what if you're your signs when you have to assert yourself or set boundaries? No, because everything is that way. I mean, you know, let's say I'm walking outside and somebody attacks me. I'm not just going to sit there and go meta, meta, meta as I'm getting beat up. I'm going to try to disable the person. Uh, I'm not going to try to kill them. I'm going to try to disable them and hold them for the police if I can do that. But so everything is in accord with the, you know what you do. You know, so you, you don't do things to harm people, 
but you, you that's the wisdom tempering the compassion okay it's not like like stupid uh, compassion or unwisely compassion you have the wisdom to balance it out to tell you what to do and I, I remember once when I was very young there was this one Taoist master and he was asking me and I was ta telling him about compassion and stuff so then he was like at, at the dinner when we were at the same function and he was saying oh Gilbert said that you know that you should have this unbridled compassion so I told, told him give me your money you know and I'm just going like I didn't say anything you know because it was what he said was foolish I mean it was just totally foolish you know um, and the only thing I could have said would have really seriously embarrassed him um, and because it would show he has no wisdom or, or compassion but um, so you sometimes you bite your tongue but but it doesn't mean that you just if somebody says that I am going to prove it by giving them all my money that's that's silly and so again what we practice is the middle way the Madhyamaka school is teaching us not too much of this and not too little of that that goes all the way back to Shakyamuni Buddha in his first experiences before he became enlightened he understood that you, you don't tighten the, the strings on the loop too tight or or they'll break or too loose or they won't play music it's just the even way and the same thing with you what how you practice you do the middle way and it will work okay Good question did you want to yeah so it's a journey you're welcome we're gonna have uh, a break uh, and you're welcome to join us and ask your questions believe me you uh, you won't tire me out um, and so you're all welcome to come in and introduce yourselves and me to introduce myself to you and uh, I want to thank you for listening to this I mean it's a little bit different and my approach of uh, presenting this to you was part very profound and part simple uh, but I was hoping to to touch uh, you know your your hearts tonight and um, and if I did that then it will it will reap benefits later on. So thank you and I'll turn it over to Michael. Okay, so let's all head over uh, to the comments room uh, just across the hallway and I hope that everyone has time to come. And for those who have to leave now, thank you very much for making it. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>